The following message was given by Mark Beckton on Sunday, September 17th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Now take your Bibles, find Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. As Shelby explained last Sunday, <clears throat> uh, when Robert returns from sabbatical, the aim is to walk us through the Gospel of Matthew, enjoying the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. As elders, we're, we're just processing, how do we help us as followers be prepared for that journey of walking with Christ in the Gospels? And one of the best ways we could was by looking at the book of Hebrews and just the glory of Christ. Uh, as you'll hear in just a moment, the, the book of Hebrews was written to a community of Hebrews. Uh, some of them regenerate, some of them not. Anytime you get a community of those who follow Christ, like our gathering today, there are some who are regenerate, which means they have accepted Christ, following after Christ, and some that, that have not. But what they were going through caused some to say, I, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Which is before we get into Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I want to talk about two families. Uh, the family of Daryl Bach and the family of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Daryl Bach is a seminary professor who wrote a book, Who is Jesus? And that book was birthed out of years of dialogue with his lawyer brother, who I believe was not a follower. And it was a dialogue of uh, who has this right? Who's reliable? When you look at what the Bible says, can you trust it? When you listen to what the Bible says about Jesus, can you trust it? Or is it better to trust just historical records rather than biblical accounts? And they had this ongoing dialogue for years. And uh, Daryl Bach, the seminary professor, said, I felt like we were always using different sets of rules in our position and in our conversation. Then you have Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was born in 1906 and the son of what was then Germany's famous, most famous psychiatrist. His mom had an education degree, which was in 1906 was unheard of for a woman to have such a degree. And when the eight children gathered with mom and dad at the table, they wanted discussions. They wanted their children to think. And as Eric McTaxis wrote about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Here's the reason why the Bonhoeffers wanted this type of dialogue at their table. The Taxus writes, The Bonhoeffers believe that one must not only think clearly, but must prove one's thoughts in action. If one was unprepared to live out of what one claimed to, be to believe, perhaps one didn't believe what one claimed after all. They wanted this 
conviction and thoughts to reveal itself in the way they lived. And these two families, the Box and the Bonhoeffers, really set a springboard for the book of Hebrews. See, in Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 32 through 34, it talks about what this Jewish community is experiencing. The predominantly believing Jews, with some that were unregenerate among them, wanting to know of Christ, follow after Christ, but maybe not of Christ. But still, this gives you a picture of what they are experiencing being associated as followers of Christ. It says, at that season they were being ostracized with taunts. They were feeling afflictions. They're even having the confiscation of their property. Though elsewhere in Hebrews it will say, though they haven't drawn blood yet. Which means unlike in Acts when you see followers being martyred. That hadn't happened yet, but in their mind they're thinking, it's just a matter of time. So as a result in their thinking, it might be easier just to pull back on following Jesus or others even being associated with him. Which is why this letter is beautiful to have. Because as we will see when looking at the first four verses, the Father is trying to encourage and even instruct his followers how to stand in a day when you are being bombarded by so many other opinions and voices that cause your following of Christ to feel threatening. Sound familiar? Feel familiar? H. Dale Burke in his book entitled Less is More Leadership, a pastor writes, this is one question that he loves to ask and I think it's pertinent for our journey today. The question is this, in a room full of opinions, whose voice do you want to hear most? Much like in the, in the first century when there were a lot of opinions about Christians, about those who are followers of the way, about those who are followers of Christ and they're feeling the pressure of that. When you and I are feeling it on social media, when you and I hear it, whether in the podcasts we listen to or what we pick up to read, we almost have to ask ourselves the very same question in a world full of opinions. As a follower of Christ, whose voice do we really want to hear most? And for us, it's God's, which is how the Father introduces this whole letter to these Jewish followers. Look at verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now it's sharing that God spoke many times, multiple times, multiple ways. But when you look at the Old Testament itself, I'm just starting with how God did this in the Old Testament, because he mentions in verse 1 through the prophets, you get to see the beauty that God is not silent. You don't have to guess what he's thinking or what his nature is like. You'll, you'll find in his Exodus chapter 34 verses 27 and 28, Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. All the first five books of the Old Testament, God inspired Moses to write, write down these words. It's a beautiful encouragement that continues. One hundred times Jeremiah states, the word of the Lord came to me. More than 60 times Ezekiel says that his words are God's. And each of the 12 minor prophets share at the opening of their books that he was writing the word of God as God gave it to him. Man, what assurance. But then you have the New Testament. We've talked about the old, what about the new? You'll find in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Old Scripture, Old Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Because when this was written, 2 Timothy wasn't considered New Testament then. They're even talking about the Old Testament, but while now we know it's the New Testament as well. Old Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So how is this God-breathed work done? It's explained in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy... Now we're talking about even what was what said in verse 1. He spoke through the prophets. So even no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit this word carried along is almost the picture uh, of wind filling the sails and moving them it's a beautiful picture now I can hear Bach's brother the attorney saying but you're doing it again you're letting Scripture validate Scripture. You're letting Scripture say why Scripture is credible. Where are the historical evidences? Well, that's a great question, so let's talk about that just for a moment. Uh, I, I love looking at the works of Plato, and then Aristotle, Homer's Iliad, and then the New Testament. Let's go back just to the historical writings and their times. Uh, with these four periods, let's look at when the manuscript was first written and then when the first copy of that manuscript was written so we know that we have a, a reliable resource in the copies so with, regarding Plato uh, he wrote his material from 427 to 347 BC the first copy of those didn't occur until 900 AD the copies that we actually have are 1200 years removed from the original Aristotle from 384 to 322 BC, the first copy was 1100 AD, 1400 removed from the original. Homer's Iliad, 900 BC, and then by 400 BC, the first copy, so it's just 500 years removed from the original. And now the New Testament. New Testament was penned 50 to 100 AD. The first copy, 130 A.D., less than 100 years. But what about the number of copies that we have of these to compare, to make certain that the copies that we do have can be compared to see if they are true to the original. 
Well, according to Plato, we have seven of his copies, Aristotle, 49 of his, Homer's Iliad, 643, and the New Testament, 5,686. But if we even included the Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic languages of those copies, it's now toward 24,000. And the question is, but are they accurate? You got all these copies, they just could have their own different views, different writings. And they began to compare the manuscripts together, and they found them all to be 99.5% accurate. Okay, what's this 0.5%? Typos. There was no word check at that time. And some word alteration slight here or there. Which brings us back to this. In a world of so many voices vying for your attention and your allegiance, whose do you want to hear? As a follower of Christ, you want to hear God's voice and you see the reliability of it in His Word. But the beauty of Hebrews is it even moves from God's Word to also God's Son. And they are not conflicting, they are the same. Uh, let's look at this now, how God spoke by His Son. What we're going to see now, we go back through verses 1 through 4, is basically a movie trailer. Uh, verses 1 through 4 has these beautiful images, rapid punching images, to give us an appetite, a, a teaser, for what we're going to see in chapters 1 through 10. So basically, like a movie trailer makes you want to see the movie, these verses should make us want to know more about Christ. So let's look at it. Verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. He, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of His power. Making pure, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, verse 1, we've already gone through. Uh, God has spoken through the prophets. And in verse 2, it's now He speaks through His Son, Christ. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, when we get there, explains that none of the Hebrews receiving this letter ever personally saw Jesus live or heard Him teach. And this is the bridge from them to us. In, in many ways, I didn't have the privilege to watch Jesus perform the miracles. To sit on the mount and listen to him teach. To hear the dialogue that he would have with others as he went his way. I never saw him. Yet it is by God's grace he opened my eyes to who Christ is. By God's grace... He graced me with a faith to know this is true. And it's by the piercing of His Spirit into my very being, I knew 
because of God's holiness in my sin and because of his grace I can know him through repentance and submission what a joy that he has done that and now for these Hebrews they didn't see Jesus they never heard him teach and yet now they're wanting to hear more and God's intent is for them to know more of the one in whom they have believed and followed and by knowing him more intimately to continue walking with him strongly continually so let's look at this there are certain things that that we can look at regarding Christ in these four verses that add to that strength of conviction to stay and to follow and it is Jesus's credibility and his uniqueness now when you look at verses 2 through uh, 3 you're going to look at Jesus's competence you'll look at his character and his goodwill now what's beautiful about that is uh, the University of Texas at Arlington uh, communication department they, they define source credibility that's what we're looking for who speaks into our lives and are they credible to hear are they credible to to follow after when they talk about source credibility, it's the attitude the listeners have to the person speaking. Their credibility. And they identified the three main traits that I just mentioned. Competence, character, and goodwill. And what's beautiful is you find in verses 2 and 3, it unloads that. And then upholds that beautifully in Christ. So let's talk about the competence of Christ as seen in verse 2. Look what it says. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to, us, spoken to us by his son, Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's identified as the heir of God. That's his competence. Now, when you and I talk about competence as an heir, we think about the resources given to the heir. So, therefore, Jesus should have all the resources of God. We'd also think as an heir that he would have the inherent authority. Well, he would then have the authority of God. But this is even more than that. When you look at the verse, it also talks about him having the inherent ability of God. Look at this now at, uh, in John chapter 1. Stay where you are. Stay where you are. But go find John chapter 1. If you know the four Gospels, you'll know that Matthew and Luke give us an introduction to Jesus by just going through the genealogies that lead us up to Jesus. When you look at John's Gospel, we're introduced to Jesus not with a genealogy, but with an awareness of who he was before the foundations of the world. Now look at this. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. We'll see in just a little bit that this word, Word, refers to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. If competence assures credibility, then consider all the voices who say that their view, belief, or opinion is right. Can they claim to have created the universe? In my mind, I still remember. I don't know where I first heard this. 
that Neil Armstrong was always the person who could have the last say in a group who are trying to one-up each other. Everybody could boast what they did, and all they can say is, walked on the moon. <laughs> Until Jesus enters the room. Created the moon that you worked, walked on. <laughs> this is where you get an idea of the competency of Christ. Scripture says, he created it all. So stop for a moment and list the voices that influences your views of life, family, work, money. Assess their competence. What have they truly done in life to make their opinion credible? Some built companies, others earned degrees, some are popular with many who read their works. But how does that compare with God's statement about Jesus? He's my son, my heir, and by the way, I commissioned him to create the universe. It's with that that you move beautifully, not just to seeing his competencies. Somebody can be extremely competent, but their character is so off-putting. You don't want to listen to him. Not Christ. He moves now then to... His character. You find that in verse 3. Go back. Stay in John 1. We'll come back to that. But look now back at Hebrews chapter 1. As we look at Christ's character, he's called the radiance of God's glory. Verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe with the power of his word. Now we slip back to competence just for a moment. He not only created it, he upholds it. Uh, in the early service, this wasn't even in the preparation, but just came to mind. I, I love the listening to S.M. Lockridge when I was growing up. He was a black pastor in California who's now passed away. Eloquent. But he describes creation this way. Christ took from nothing, created something, hung it on nothing, put it in motion, and told it to stay. By the power of his word. And if any of you know how delicate the rotation of our galaxy is, it gives you an idea of the power of his word. He is so competent. But this verse speaks to his radiance. His character. The word radiance in the Greek means to send forth light. Send forth light. That's the reason I'm wanting you to go back to John chapter 1. So we're in Hebrews chapter 1. Go back now to John chapter 1 as we continue its introduction of Jesus to us. We'll be looking at John chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 and then we'll slide to verse 14. And you're going to find this concept, this picture of radiance sending forth light explained by John. In him, Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And now we've been talking about the word. Verse 14 gives us the picture that it's Christ. Here's how. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Remember, we talk about the radiance of the glory of Christ. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the beauty of the light of Christ. 
in our dark lives. God intended for Jesus to shed the light of God's nature on our dark, deceptive view of ourselves, each other, and God. And you see it in his life. And then John qualifies how you see it. You see it how he lived out the fullness of grace and truth. Uh, I, lo I love a small work written by Randy Alcorn called The Grace and Truth Paradox. In it, he insightfully unpacks how so often in our nature, even as followers, we have a tendency to either speak the truth with such clarity and force, but we have to do it in a way in our mind that we withhold grace. Or on the other side, we want to live out the grace of Christ in such a tender way, but we feel like if we do it, we, we better not speak the fullness of the truth. Yet in Jesus Christ, in all circumstances, you find him doing this beautifully and radiantly. And the case study for this for me is John chapter 8, verse 11. If you know the story. An angry mob of men bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Uh, they're holding stones and knowing that the Old Testament law says she's to be stoned. And they ask him, what should we do? We don't know what he writes down that everybody can probably see. But all he says to him, you without sin cast the first stone. And the stones begin to drop one at a time. And the crowd disbands. And it's just Jesus with this woman. Jesus who can forgive sins. Says this to her in John. Chapter 8 verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Do you hear this? There's two things that are beautifully full there. What you've done is a sin. We're not going to change it. We're not going to make it light. We're just going to say what it is. It's sin. But do you see how I've loved you in this? Now, years ago, uh, pastoring a church I pastored in Richmond, my heart's desire was to, to live this out, but also to, uh, as, as a body to live this out. And I shared that with my wife, Lori, early on in this journey. I said, I just feel like we need to be walking through this. She said, and she was spot on, Mark, it's right and it's good, but it's not going to be easy. And it's not. Even to this day, I'm still working with Christ. And he's still surfacing in me areas where my sin is not being submissive to him. My nature wants to speak truth without grace or give grace without truth. And yet, I can't escape the radiance of his nature and want to be like him. His competence, his character, and his goodwill. You find this when you finish verse 3. I call it seeing Jesus as God's right hand lamb. You'll find this in verse 3, the latter part. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
So in verse 3, it unapologetically gives Jesus sole credit for the purification of our sins. Now, if you know the Old Testament, this is the beauty of the Father. All these things that were breathed out by God to be written out in the Old Testament were actually to give us a picture of His holiness, our sinfulness, what would be required for us to have a, a relationship where He would... Know us intimately and we would know him intimately. As Jesus prays in John 17, 3. So all this in the Old Testament about finding a lamb without blemish to be sacrificed annually for our sins by a high priest is the picture that Hebrews gives us of Christ and what he did. It is Jesus Christ who... Lived a life without blemish. You'll find in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18. We know for truth that he was born of a virgin. Which means according to Romans chapter 5. Which says we are all born into sin. Because of the virgin birth he was not. Yet. Hebrews chapter 2 18 tells us. That in this fallen world he was still tempted like we are. But did not sin. Each day he dealt. With the lies of a fallen world. But did not sin. Knowing he is to be a lamb without blemish. And he offers himself on the cross. Up unto the father. As the lamb. But when he ascends from his resurrection. After 40 days and ascends. Scripture says Hebrews will tell us. That as our high priest who offered himself as the lamb. He sits beside God his right hand. And the beautiful thing about that, the high priest sitting shows that what Jesus said on the cross is true. His last words, what? It is finished. There's no more need for an annual lamb. Jesus did it. And he sits. Honestly, if we were to be uh, real with each other, Christianity as a name does not have a good name among all peoples. And it's not Jesus' fault. Um, there are things in history and things even today where we haven't emulated Christ well. But I bet if you ask people who would read the Gospels and know a story, is there anything about Jesus that offends you? Just reading his life, his miracles, healings. The way that he would reach out to the overlooked and the outcast. You can't help but see his good will. Especially when he sacrificed himself for those who were mocking him. Which would be us. So when you look at Christ's competence... When you look at his character, when you look at his goodwill, why would we want to have or hear any other source being the primary source of our life? But there's more. When you get to verse 4, you just can't escape the uniqueness of Christ. So let's do that. Let's look at verse 4. This is our last verse to look at. Look what it says. It gives us a picture of Jesus being superior to the angels. And there's a lot behind this. This goes into his uniqueness. Verse 4. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
Why are we getting into angels? Well, first of all, and again, this is a, a kind of a teaser of its own for what will be explained even more in the coming weeks. Uh, Old Testament has 108 references to angels. New Testament, 165. But, but here's what I want you to hear. In Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it alludes to a shift in how the first century Jews viewed angels. In their mind, they believed angels gave the law, the Old Testament law, to Moses because direct communication between God and man was unthinkable. Yet somehow they forgot that 46 times in Exodus, it says the Lord said to Moses. So with this in their mind that surely Jesus is lower than the angels, it needs to be addressed that he is not. So how do they do that? They do that through Psalm 8. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, Psalm 8 talks to us about him uh, and his, his glory. But when you look at all the Psalms and you begin to unpack chapter 1, it just begins to show you in a gentle way with these Hebrews who would know the Psalms how excellent and superior Jesus is. Let me go through it quickly, and, but it will be unpacked more in the later weeks. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 5 is the same as... Psalm 2, 7, Jesus alone is God's son. <coughs> verse 6 is the same as Psalm 97, verse 7. All supernatural powers worship Jesus. In uh, Hebrews 1, 7 is the same as Psalm 104, verse 4. Angels serve at God's pleasure and angels worship Jesus, God's anointed. In verses uh, 10 through 12 in Hebrews 1 is the same as Psalm 102, 25 to 27. The earth Jesus created will one day change, but Jesus who created all never changes. Thus even the angels created worship Him. And then finally, Psalm, I mean, uh, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, like Psalm 110, verse 1, or Psalm 103, 20, 22. Until that change, Jesus sits at God's right hand, and the angels minister to Him and others as He sees fit. Here's why I've done this. I love what Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. How did these Jewish believers get to this place of seeing Jesus lower than the angels? It starts with a conviction or an opinion that then becomes shared by more, repeated by more, and then it becomes a conviction that is held by more. That is unbiblical. There is nothing new under the sun. We can do the same thing, taking our view and saying, it probably should be this way. Sharing with others and say, yeah, I can see that. Then it becomes an opinion shared by more, and after it's rehearsed again and again by more, even in our day, we can have convictions that we think are biblical but are not. Until we bring them back to Christ and His Word. Which is why we're going to be looking at Hebrews just for the delight and the beauty and the glory of Christ to get ourselves ready to hear Him well. So when we come to this place in life, I'm going to wrap up with doing what I call a quick assessment. In, in our daily living, I read somewhere that it says that we make 600 decisions a day. 
600 decisions a day. That's the reason at the end of the day, we're usually mentally exhausted. Particularly if you go to Starbucks. Uh, I really believe that the 600 decisions we make today are more difficult and complicated in some ways than they were decades ago because of a Starbucks. There was a uh, spokesperson for Starbucks who told a Wall Street Journal blogger the following. If you take all of our core beverages, multiply them by the modifiers and customization options, you get more than 87,000 combinations. Now, I do not drink coffee. It's not a conviction. I just don't like the taste. But I can tell you, if I was the person at Starbucks, the line would be long behind me. Because I would freeze from all of those combinations trying to put it together. And that's just not Starbucks. The information at our hand with our phones. All the reading that we can do, research we can do. Every decision seems such more weighted. Even more complicated. Because of so many voices going on. So how do we do this? in a world that's wanting to scream into us, follow me, trust me. Two things. One, with each decision, consider the source. Go, go to a quick, consider the source. This, this is a, a helpful thing. My great nephew is now in Georgetown University, started this, this year, but when he was in kindergarten, his mom picked him up from school, asked him his day, of course he talked about recess, where Bobby, I'm going to talk about Bobby, but that's not his name. I don't remember it. Plus, it's good that nobody knows this boy's name. Uh, Bobby uh, was in the playground, and Mason and his friend were there. And Bobby told Mason and his friend they were losers. And my niece's mama bear kicked in. And she said, that's not true. That's not right. He should have done that. You're not losers. And she just went on. Finally, the five-year-old tells my niece, mama, mama. You don't need to worry. It was Bobby. He pee-pees in two potties. Now you've got to process that. Somewhere before recess or after recess, somehow through time, Bobby just felt like he could relieve himself in all the urinals at once. My great nephew is telling his mom, Oh, mom, it was Bobby. Consider the source. <laughs> in some of the decisions that are before us and some of the voices that are speaking in, sometimes it's not a lot of deliberation. You know by the voice, you know by what they're saying, it's not reliable. But there are some that are not. There are some that have a giftedness with reasoning. And what they say and how they articulate it, the history that they bring behind it, the research that is surrounding it, and, and even the following that seems to have a, a tidal wave of support with it. All of this seems to say to us, this must be true. But in those type of moments, the other way you handle it is you compare it to the best. This is still not the best source to listen to. So you compare it to the best. And there's an example of this. Take your Bibles to, to John chapter 6. You have listened so well. This is the last little part. But I think this is telling. At least it helps me. 
We're going to be looking at verses 66 through 69. The backstory to this, you know, Jesus has just fed thousands with a child's lunch. But at the end of this, he's also going to make a statement that causes the masses who had come in awe of him to say, I don't want to be part of him. He says, you will eat my flesh and drink my blood. And now as they're all just beginning to filter away, Christ is considering his 12. And now he asks him this question. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Watching everybody else walk away, there is that deep conviction in Peter of what he knows to be true. Christ is the Messiah. Who else has the words of life? Now the beauty of that word life is you'll go to John chapter 17 verse 3 the night before Jesus is crucified and he's praying Lord I'm grateful to you for those that you have given to me so that I may give to them eternal life. And then in verse 3 says and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and me who you sent. And Peter is saying, who else has the words that I might intimately know God now and forever? Who else has the words that I might might intimately know you now and forever? I can trust none others like I trust you. I'm staying with you. Which is why the letter to the Hebrews was written to these this community of, of Jewish believers and those who were unregenerate that they might continue in following Christ even in the midst of all that they feel and that's why we need to hear it as well in short Christ is awesome let's pray together Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, I ask forgiveness when it seems I spend more time listening to the thoughts of the world around me more than just sitting at your feet to hear you well with your word. I ask forgiveness even as a pastor when I look to what other pastors have read and said for a quick answer instead of just sitting with you and your word. I praise you, Father. You have purposed our lives in this day. In a day when there are more voices vying for our allegiance than ever before. You have purposed our lives in this hour to know you well in this time. And I know, Father, 
I grow weary, and we, we all grow weary with the contrast constantly of how what we are hearing. Is it true? Would you say it is, or is it not? Is all of it true, some of it true, or is it not? I thank you, Lord, because you force us to sit at your feet. And there's nothing sweeter than getting up from having heard you well. Father, prepare us now for taking of communion <laughs> as followers, eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Thank you, Jesus, for persisting and loving us with grace and also speaking such truth. In Jesus' name I pray. You've been listening to a message by Mark Becton given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.